we're going to get into the study this morning. Um, we are moving through uh, the first few chapters of Leviticus, just looking at the five Levitical offerings. Then we're going to jump back to the New Testament, get back into 1 Corinthians. We're about halfway through this series on sacrifice, and specifically what we've been looking at is how each one of these was custom-built to point forward to Jesus and to our worship experience as Christians. And so we're going to take a look at another one of those this morning. If you have a Bible, you want to open it up to Leviticus chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one tucked in a pew nearby that you're welcome to use. The index will get you to Leviticus. It's just the third book in. You know, when you, um, you go to play a board game, the first thing you always have to do is the setup, right? You can't just start playing. The pieces have to be in place. Take chess, for example, right? If the pieces aren't in their starting place on the board, there's no starting. Every time I teach, I feel that same sense where it's like we could just jump in, but the pieces really aren't in play yet. And um, this passage specifically has that because you can't understand the offering that we'll look at this morning, the peace offering, just by reading Leviticus chapter 3. Just in terms of basic structure, the Levitical offerings that we've been looking at take up space from Leviticus 1 through Leviticus 7, but they're actually repeated in that. And so they're covered once and then they're covered again in a different way and in a different order, most likely because the first few chapters are for the offerers. Here's the manual for the people bringing the offering, and then the last two are for the priest. Here's the manual for the people who are going through uh, the practice of the offering. Um, But this offering in particular, the peace offering, we need to not just read here, but we'll turn over a few pages to chapter 7, and then then we'll pray and we'll get started. And um, I'm laughing on the inside when I say that, because as soon as I finish praying, we're going to look at Psalm 5 again, but that's just setting the pieces. Um, Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering... If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar, and from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails, all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them in the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, and he shall remove it with the kidneys." Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood, on the fire. It's a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. Lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it in front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron's sons shall throw his blood against the side of the altar." Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the loins and the long lobe of the liver. That he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer, it from, uh, f- uh, offer from it as an offering, as a food offering to the Lord, the fat that's covering the entrails, all the fat that's on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them, at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And a priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Now turn over to chapter 7. And look with me at verse 11. 
and this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer it with the thanksgiving sacrifice, unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread, and from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offering. And the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until morning, but if the sacrifice of offering is a vow offering or a freewill offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It's tainted, and he who eats it shall bear his iniquity. Uh, And then jump down to verse 28, last section here. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hand shall bring the Lord's food offering. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offering. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat shall have its right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and his sons from the Lord's food offering from the day they were presented to serve uh, as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given to them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It's a perpetual due throughout their generations. Let's pray. God, we come from a convenience culture, and if we had a sacrificial system today, we would have incorporated some sort of a drive-through into it. We see the difficulty and the detail and the repetitiveness and the visceralness of this, and we, we readily um, hold it at a distance and see it as foreign and confusing and these types of things. Um, but I pray that we'd be able to see beyond this by the help of your spirit this morning and that we would understand um, what your heart is in this sacrifice and how we worship you um, in reflection of this. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may have noticed the last section we read there in chapter 7 was all about the priesthood. And, and basically what it says is that a portion of this offering that was brought every time um, the uh, breast as well as the right thigh was given to the priest. It's, it's basically his, um, his stipend, his payment for being a priest. Um, the priesthood in Israel was made up of a single tribe of the 12 tribes known as the Levites, and they didn't have normal jobs, and they didn't have houses that they owned outright, and they didn't have farms. They were fully and completely sustained by the other tribes. And the primary way that they received um, both their food and their money to buy food was this portion, this allotment of the sacrifices that was allowed to them. Now the reason why I'm emphasizing this this morning is because you have to recognize how important this happening, the temple is, to God's view of Israel's purpose. Right? Not only does he lay out chapter after chapter of extensive details for these things, and Leviticus, by the way, keeps going after chapter 7, and then it says, here's all the things that will keep you from this space, the tabernacle. Here's the things that must be avoided. This huge manual is laid out that answers the question, who shall go up the hill of the Lord? Who shall enter into the tabernacle? What does it look like to dwell with a holy God? And on top of that, there's this priesthood that's given that's devoted to just helping people with this task. Um, They would take three-month rotations, so they would live in cities that were donated by the other tribes, so the Levites were spread across Israel. They would teach while they were at home, and then three months out of the year, they would serve in the sacrifices at the temple or the tabernacle. Um, And so their entire life was dedicated over to this, and God made sure that they'd be well provided for in this, okay? 
here's why I'm emphasizing this. You cannot understand the worship of Israel, you cannot understand the God of the Bible, and you cannot understand Christianity if you miss the reality of the tabernacle. If you miss the fact that's pointed to in this passage that there's a part of Israel's religion that's not merely ethical, right? And you may look at this, especially if you're a religious anthropologist, even an armchair one, and go, see, what we see here is an evolution of religion that was very pagan, right, and afraid of the world, and so sacrifices to appease the God, but the ethics of the Bible are starting to move forward into something better, and, and eventually they leave these things behind because, because they're, um, they're Neanderthal, they're, they're ancient, they're not valuable, but to do that would to miss the purposes of the sacrifices of Israel. To do that would miss the actuality of the tabernacle. In fact, even as we read Psalm 5 this morning, it hit me that even in Psalm 5, you can see that there's more going on than just rules and sacrifices. Um, Turn there really quickly with me and, and, and look at this. Reading through the Psalms in the modern world can be a little bit jarring, especially when we're not just selecting the ones that we'd like to recite, um, but are reading directly through. The language that Psalm 5 uses to speak of the wicked and the requests that it makes of God in dealing with the wicked are intense. But what I want you to notice is the, the goal, the trajectory, the purpose laying behind all of this. What is the why behind all of these statements? And so notice, for example, um, what it says in verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Do you hear that? What's the problem with wickedness? It keeps you from the presence of God. Now notice he continues that same thing. In contrast, verse 7, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Um, Notice again in verse um, 11, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Uh, the emphasis in this whole thing, the focus is dwelling with God, being in the presence of God. That's how we understand what the tabernacle is. The tabernacle was this physical manifestation, this place where, if you will, God moved into the neighborhood of Israel and he was present. And if that didn't happen, no Leviticus, no kosher laws, no need for recognizing the clean and the unclean. The, the tabernacle was this place that was unique in all of human history where the presence of God dwelled visibly and tangibly. And the reason is because God's whole goal, according to the Bible, and Israel's entire worship was focused on this presence of God, on being with God and God being with his people. If you miss that, the Bible becomes unintelligible. If you just reduce it down to ways to live and a bunch of archaic uh, misunderstandings of how the world works, then you forget that this is the most important thread, right? This is why six chapters of the book of Numbers are taken up just telling us how to put the tabernacle together. This is why the entire book of Leviticus tells us what goes on there and who can enter and how it's maintained. It's the reason why um, David, you know, the man after God's own heart, what does he most want to do? He wants to build a house for the Lord. The sacrifice that we're looking at this morning, the peace offering, I think says this better than anything else. As we've been looking at the offerings, we've seen a lot of commonalities, right? All of them have a a part that the offerer brings to the table. All of them has a part that the priest must play. All of them eventually are brought to the tabernacle, and part of them is burned on the altar. Um, Each and every one of the Levitical offerings is to be costly, even though we see that God makes means for for that cost to be something that anyone can do. So the poor can bring a bird, even though the wealthy should bring, uh, you know, a calf, these types of things. But as we've been going through, we've also found unique aspects in each one. And those are the places where we start to learn about the tangible lesson that God was teaching Israel, the historical prophecy, the picture painted in history, lived out in days and moments and uh, habits, uh, pointing forward to who Jesus would be and who we are. 
And here's the thing. What we see in the peace offering is more than just appeasing God so he'll leave us alone. What we see in the peace offering is more than just recognizing that there's something that's corrupted this relationship. What we see in the peace offering is that the final goal of the entire sacrificial system, the final goal of Israel's existence, their purpose as a nation, and the final goal of Jesus' coming is all bound out about being with God. Now, what is unique about this offering? As we read through chapter 3, it looks very similar. If your offering is from the herd, if your offering is from the flock, if your offering is a goat, that's how chapter 3 breaks down. Um, And we see, like we did with the burnt offering in chapter 1, that you lay your hand on the animal, that its throat is slit, that its blood is spilled out, that it's splashed against the altar. That is the same. Um, We see that it lays out at these three different levels, so what you have, you can bring. Um, But when we start to look at differences, we do find some interesting ones, and there's two in chapter 3 that are of note. Uh, The first is that it doesn't have to be a male sacrifice. This is the only offering where you could bring a female. And the reason we saw for the male offering back in the burnt offering, the reason why it was required that you bring a male is because they were the most costly. Um, In a culture that raises, uh, you know, cows for milk, for example, the calves are, or the uh, male, the bulls, are just a liability, right? And even if you're breeding, uh, breeding for better breeding, even more so, right? Because if you don't control your breeding, then your weak bull is going to breed just as much as your strong bull, etc. And so there was a culling in Israel, like there is in most agrarian societies, even today, where you control the male population and keep it small. That means by bringing a male, you're bringing something very costly, something you're going to notice that's not there, something that if it's not replaced with the coming season, you're going to be in serious trouble, right? But why here, male or female? Another thing we see is an emphasis on the fat, right? It's probably the strangest portion for us as modern readers today. It emphasizes not just the fat, uh, you know, like you trim off the corners of your steak, but these fatty lobes that encase a few of the organs. And if you were paying attention with the offering from the flock, it mentions a fat tail, which is not how we normally think of sheep, right? Uh, Here's why, okay? The sheep that Israel was familiar with had a tail that would hang all the way to the ground and could weigh as much as 60 pounds. In fact, I've seen illustrations of little wheeled carts with uh, collars that they would make so the sheep could carry these tails behind them because they'd get so heavy. Uh, It was considered a delicacy in some local cultures, okay? So that's what it's talking about. Still, though, there's this emphasis on fat, and it really drives it home in verse... um, Verse 16, did you notice? The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Now, we've already talked about the blood. That's common in many of the sacrifices, but here the fat is emphasized. And when you get to chapter 7, we skipped over this part, but it emphasizes it again. Okay? So that's unique. And then the last thing that we find that you'd miss if you didn't see chapter, or chapter 7 is that that's the only portion that's, built on the altar, uh, that's burnt on the altar. So the blood is spilled out, the fat is placed on the altar to burn, and the rest of the animal is eaten by the offerer and his family. Okay? That's what makes this sacrifice unique. And so that's why it explains in chapter 7 that a portion of that needs to go to the priest and the rest is eaten. It explains that it needs to be eaten today and possibly tomorrow, but not any later than that. It explains, um, uh, it explains in chapter 7 who is not allowed to eat. And so it's not something that's so holy only the priest can eat it, like the grain offering we saw last week but you do need to be clean to eat it. And so if you're going through a time of impurity, if you've got these things going on, those people weren't invited to the feast, and it happened right there at the tabernacle. But the goal of this sacrifice is a feast. There's a portion that's not just offered to the Lord, but eaten by the offerer. That's what makes the peace offering unique, okay? Now, these first three offerings, the ones that we've looked at in this series so far, the burnt offering the grain offering, and now the peace offering, they stand alone from the other two. 
When we look at the sin offering and the guilt offering over the next two weeks, both of those are required when certain things happen. When things like this happen, these offerings must be brought. But all three of the first ones are a free will offering. You bring them when you want to bring them. You bring them on your own initiative because you desire to. Not only that, but all three of them end by saying it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so these three are tied together. And some even believe that these sacrifices are so tied together that we should actually see them as a process. That they would start with the burnt offering and then the grain offering, but the culmination was the peace offering. In fact, when the Levitical priests are set aside for service on day one, that's the process that they go through. So it's a burnt offering first and then a grain offering and then a peace offering and there's a huge feast. Okay. Now, the biggest peace offering we have on record is offered by Solomon, and it's in the hundreds of thousands of offerings as all of Israel gathers to feast together at the building of the temple. Okay? But the feast, that is the pinnacle of Israel's worship. That is the goal of the entire tabernacle. If you've been with us, you know that Leviticus chapter 1 picks up the story where it's left off in Exodus. In Exodus, the tabernacle is built, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle, and it says in the last chapter, and even Moses could not enter in. So here they have the presence of God, they're as close as they can get, but they have no access to it. And Leviticus is set up to answer the question, how do we enter in? How do we enjoy the presence of God? How, how does that happen? And so the sacrifices, but the pinnacle, the goal, the trajectory of all of it, the highlight, the centerpiece of Israel's worship is the peace offering. See, here's the thing. There are so many ways for human beings to answer the question, who is God and what does he want from me? The the answers are very broad. But it is so easy because of those broad answers to miss how the Bible answers that question. What we see here is a feast. And we see this played out over and over again on the pages of Scripture. In Isaiah 25, looking forward, he says, There's coming a time where on this mountain, God is going to lay out a feast for the whole world and invite them to dine. When Jesus gets on the scene, that's the way he sees his own ministry. And so he tells a parable and he says, You want to know what the kingdom of God is? The kingdom of God is like a feast. And a man sent his servants out to invite people to the feast. Jesus' inaugural miracle, the one he did first, his coming out party to say, this is who I am and this is what I'm about, was providing wine for a wedding. And even in the darkest moment of Jesus' life, his last will and testimony, as he has the last supper with his disciples, a meal that begins by going, I'm so glad to join you today because I'm about to die. That's how Luke tells us he starts the dinner, okay? And everything then he says over the next few hours becomes of severe importance. And what does he say in that? Even there in that dark hour, according to Luke, uh, let's see if I can do this without looking. Uh, Luke 20, verse 30. I'm going to hang my hat on that. Luke 20, verse 30, he says, there's a feast until the feast of the kingdom This is the last time I'll drink wine with you until the feast, right? He looks forward to this time. When we get to the book of Revelation, as John is trying to help us imagine what it is that God has for his people, he says, and I saw the bride adorned for her husband. And then the angel breaks out and prays, speaking to John and says, blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This image of feast runs from end to end throughout the Bible. Here's the reality of a relationship with God according to the Bible. It is a celebration. You know, you will hear Christians say it's not a religion, it's a relationship. This is what they're trying to express. Okay? As unhelpful as that phrase may be, it's the recognition that it's more than a religion, not less. Recognition that it can't just be reduced down to rules Um, that the the part to play, that what God most wants of you as a human being is to be with you and for you to be with him, to enjoy him, 
and for him to enjoy you, to rejoice in God. It's a celebration. That's the way it's seen. And let me just point out to you that as you keep reading in the book of Leviticus and you get to chapter 17, you discover that the only way the Israelites ate meat was this way, the peace offering. Okay? I, I know we're such omnivores in our culture. Meat is so much a part of our lives today. Um, we, don't, we don't notice this. We, we just assume that sometimes there was a sacrificial meal and the rest of the time it was just dinner. But that's not how it was in Israel. If you were going to eat meat, you invited God to dinner. Okay? That's how this was set up. So what do we see as we look at this? First off, even though it's a celebration, even though the, the feast is laid, it still requires sacrifice. It still requires the loss of innocent life. It still requires substitution. And so we see here the offerer brings an animal, and whether it's a, um, from the herd or from the flock or a goat, whatever it is, he lays his hand on the animal and he slits his throat. The recognition there is that the only way to enter into the feast, we can't do. We can't bring in. That there's something that, such, uh, that so tarnishes human nature that we cannot exist in the tabernacle. We cannot step into the presence of God. There are so many stories in the Old Testament and in the New that teach us this in horrific ways. Places where that threshold is broken. Places where people enter in when they shouldn't. And the consequences range from breaking out in leprosy to death on the spot, right? The reality that that's trying to point to is not that there's something wrong with God, that his standards are too high, but that there's something wrong with us that makes dwelling in the presence of God an instantly dangerous scenario. Remember here that Leviticus is provided so that God can dwell with people. That's its purpose. That's its intention. And so the difficulty here is with mankind, and here's what it comes down to. If there's going to be a feast and God's going to be in attendance, you have to get away from this idea that you can set the table. That there's something in your life that you can lay out on the table and go, here is something, a gift worthy of God. Come and eat. Be, uh, you know, experience my hospitality, Lord. Notice what I have done. And the reality is, once again, it's so easy to even take the Bible story and, and reduce it down to just that. That what God ultimately wants for us is to set a good table, and if it's appealing to him, he'll come and he'll eat. He'll come into our lives. And if we, you know, if we do it right, if the etiquette's all followed, right, if we go through all the pieces, maybe we just reduce it, reduce it down to behavior and, um, and we recognize, okay, what, what God needs most to be in his presence is I have to be perfect. I have to achieve. I have to live up to the standards. That wasn't a possibility in the mind of the Israelite. The bare naked assumption of scripture about mankind is that you're not enough that there's something broken and wrong and even rebellious that makes this an impossibility. And so God provides a way for Israel to enter in, but it's not found in the laws given at Mount Sinai. Paul tells us in the New Testament, the law is a mirror that just shows you how dirty you are. It doesn't, it's not an entrance. It just shows the problem. And sacrifice is the solution. The only reason you can eat with God in attendance at the party is because he has set the table. And it's tremendously costly. It's innocent for the guilty. It's substitution. It's death so that you might live. We'll talk later about communion, but this is the reality that Jesus lays on the table that last night. He says, you want to know what the feast looks like? You want to know how God set the table? My whole ministry, I've said, God wants to celebrate with you. I'm what he's serving. I am the table. One of the hardest things that Jesus says, so hard that even the people who love him and have been following him walk away and never return. He says, look, if you want anything to do with me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And did you notice what we just read here? At the very end of the chapter, it says, what are the two things Israel's never to eat? The fat and the blood. And Jesus says, the only way you have anything to do with me is to drink my blood, Right? Now, I just want you to recognize Jesus could have taken the time to clarify. I'm speaking metaphorically. Come back, everybody. I didn't actually mean it. But he holds that line so hard. 
And when it comes to communion, he takes this Passover meal, this reminder of what God has done, and he says, I know you think this is about the past, but it's really about the future, and the future has dawned in me. This bread is now my body that's about to be broken for you. Eat it and live. This is the cup of my spilt blood. In Luke, he actually says the blood that was poured out for you. You know where we get that phrase poured out? We get it from Leviticus, right? Because that's what the priests would do. They would pour it out at the base of the altar. And so Jesus, like John at the beginning of his ministry, who says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, says, I am what God is serving. I am the entrance in. The tabernacle was laid out um, in in a room, inside a room, inside of a room, right? It was like one of those um, Russian nesting dolls as a building, okay? And so there was the outer court, and that's where these things would take place. That's where the altar is that we're talking about. And then there's the holy place. And if you're not a priest, you don't go into the holy place. And then there's the holy of holies. And the holy of holies is the place where the Ark of the Covenant is, where the mercy seat is that sits on top of the Ark, where the presence of God dwells. And that place was only entered into once a year by a single person on the Day of Atonement. By the, great, by the high priest. Whoever was the head of the priesthood in Israel would enter in and with blood and he would put it inside the Holy of Holies and that only happened once a year. Okay? Once again, pointing both to the goal, the centerpiece of worship is the presence of God and the difficulty of entering. Once a year, with blood, only the high priest. But it tells us in the Gospels that as Jesus died, miraculously the veil this curtain that was seven inches thick of material between the Holy of Holies and the holy place was torn from top to bottom. What's the message in something like that? The message is now there is access. In fact, this is what the author of Hebrews says. He says that Jesus has given us access through the torn veil of his own flesh, drawing on that same image of the Holy of Holies. Right? In fact, he even says that now it's not that we're stuck in the outside world hoping to get in, but he says we are anchored inside the veil. That's our home base now. That's where we exist as Christians in the presence of God. And so the reality is here that you have to recognize what the Bible is constantly reiterating, that the only way we come to the presence of God is through his initiative, through the sacrifice that only he can pay. Chuck Smith, who started Calvary Chapel, who we're a part of, he, he used to say this. He said, it's always made more sense to me that if there's an unbridgeable gap between God and man, that finite man bridging that gap is way harder than infinite God bridging that gap. And it's always made perfect sense to me. But the place where we struggle is not on the logic of it, it's on the necessity of it. Can you recognize this morning that Isaiah says that your righteousness what you can offer to God, what you can set on the table is merely filthy rags. And what he uses in Hebrew there is menstrual rags. Can you think of anything more uh, offensive to wrap up and offer to somebody as a gift? And he goes there. That's how he says it. And so it has to be with blood spilled. It has to be with substitution. There can be no peace with God. There can be no entering in with God without this cost. And even though the burnt offering is already on the table, this is still in play. It still needs to be said again. It still needs to be reiterated. The second thing we see about this feast has to do with the fat. Now, what's the emphasis here? Fat, throughout the scriptures, throughout Israel's history, was this picture of abundance. Right? We're, we're in a culture that no, re, no longer really has to struggle for the most part with survival. And so skinny and the, the idea of holding up skinny as beautiful is a privilege that we have that most cultures don't. Right? Fat in most cultures is a sign of abundance. It's a sign of wealth. It's a sign of richness. It's a sign of having more than you need. Right? In Israel, it was the same way. And so you'll hit phrases in the Bible that we still use today like the fat of the land. Right? It means abundance. Effectively, what is being taught Israel here as they go through this is that the best portion belongs to God. And here's the thing. If you're going to come to God's feast, you have to come as he is God and you are not. As he is host and you are not. 
And this is another aspect of it because so often what, what we want from God is some sort, of, um, some sort of relationship that ignores that. You know, we want friendship with God, and to do so, we reduce God to the basic of our friends. You know, Jesus is my homeboy is, is getting at this same thing. There's no reverence or recognition. To, to treat God as equal is inherently not to treat him as God. And so the recognition here that the fat, the best portion belongs to the Lord is something that's emphasized throughout Israel's history and reiterated in the New Testament. It's the fact that God is not just demanding the best He's worthy of it, and he's the only one who is. Let me illustrate um, one really easy way to see this in the scriptures. Over and over again, the Bible says the glory belongs to the Lord. It says that he won't share his glory with another person. It calls us constantly to glorify himself. And what's most interesting is constantly he says, I'm going to do A, B, and C for the sake of my glory. If you read the Bible carefully, God's great mission in life is to glorify himself. Look at salvation in Ephesians chapter 1. As it walks through what God has done in eternity past, in the life of Jesus, what he'll do in the future, everyone ends with God's done this to the praise of his glory and grace. Jesus coming and becoming a man, according to Philippians chapter 2, it walks through this whole thing that he did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to, but made himself as a servant, humbled himself, therefore God has highly exalted him, that every name uh, every knee should bow at his name, and how does it finish? To the praise of the glory of God. Creation itself, what does it say in Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. Why did he make the world? To glorify himself. In contrast, what if that was your MO? What if that was your mission? What if you told all your friends, my goal in life is to glorify myself? The Bible has a term for that, by the way. It's called vainglory. Do you know why it's called vainglory? Because vain means empty. And the reality is, is not uh, the reality that makes it okay for God to pursue his glory and not for us is because his is real. Because he is God. Because he created all things. Because he loved so tremendously that he became a man and died in our place. Uh, he is the only thing in the universe worthy of worship because he is the only God. And the best part is that that is the feast. That is the joy. That is the celebration. As you read through the Psalms, what you discover over and over again is that the thing that makes life worth living is knowing God himself who is glorious. And so you have to be willing for him to have the fat. You have to be willing for him to have the worship. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the old Bedazzled. Not the Brendan Fraser one, but the original. Um, there's this scene where the devil and, oh, I should remember his name, um, this British comedian who plays Brendan Fraser's part are talking, and he goes, Satan, why? Why did you rebel? Why did you do this? And he says, I'll show you, okay? I'm going to sit in this chair, the devil says to him. He says, I want you to dance around and tell me how great I am. And so Dudley Moore, that's who it is. Dudley Moore's dancing around, and he does it for a while, and then he stops, and he goes... Can, can we trade places? I'm getting bored. And he says, exactly. Right? And there's this recognition, this hesitation in us that, that says, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Why, why should God get all the credit? But the reality that you're missing is, is the reality of God himself. Let me add to this, okay? You worship all the time. Something is going to hold the center of your heart. Something is going to be the feast of your life, what makes life worth living. Something is going to be, as Psalm 5 called it, your refuge, the place where you run to when things get hard. Something is going to be the centerpiece. Not only is God the only one worthy of it, but everything else will fail you, enslave you, and destroy you. That's the constant repeated refrain of the Bible of idolatry. The, the tragedy of human life is that God has set a table that will satisfy you and we're over here eating rotten meat and going, this is the good life as we get sicker and sicker. That is the way the Bible sees it. And so the idea here is not some, um, some snobbish prig in the sky who says, I will not accept you unless you realize how awesome I am. 
even God's pursuit of his own glory is inherently loving because God is a God of love. He does it for you. He does it for us. He calls you to himself because that's what you were built for. And so, sacrifice, the blood has to be shed. The fat has to be given to the Lord. And then did you notice, did you notice in chapter 7 it lists three possible reasons why you would bring this offering. It says, if your peace offering is for, uh, for Thanksgiving, if your peace offering is for a vow, or if your peace offering is a free, willing, free will offering. So it looks at these three different places, and it's very intriguing, especially, uh, especially the vow and the thanksgiving. Recognize this, okay? Why would you bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving? You have something to be thankful for, right? The idea is that in some way God has provided for you or answered your prayer or shown up when you needed him and you're aware of it. You've somehow become aware of the fact that what you have, God has given, and you want to say thank you. And so what would you bring? A peace offering. I think that is so fascinating, okay? Because it's not just an offering to God like the, the minna sacrifice, the grain sacrifice. Hey, thank you, God, for giving. I want to give back to you. You've given me a gift, and I know it's not as comparable, but I'd like to give to you in gratitude. That's true, but here it presses beyond that gratitude and into the feast. Why? Because the reason God gives is not just because you need and not just because you want and not just because he loves you. It's because he's the giver. There is something so ingrained in human life that we can settle for the gift and neglect the giver. That we can somehow be so, um, so excited about the gift that we don't see the giver behind it. Even our gratitude can be tainted by this, where it becomes just a way to end this conversation so I can go play with my new toy, right? But it was, if gratitude's what you were bringing, what God wants is more time with you. What God wants is to feast with you. What God wants is to celebrate with you. And then the other one's on the complete other side of the spectrum, a vow. Now, vows are not outside of marriage, a normal part of modern life. So let me explain what it was like in Israel. I, I usually do this with an acronym because it helps me remember. It's voluntary, V. It's the first thing you have to understand about a vow. A vow is not a commandment. It's not a requirement. It's not something that you must do. It's something that you willingly choose to do. But it's also an obligation. Once you make a vow, you are to keep it. In Ecclesiastes, uh, the author says, look, it would be better for you to shut your mouth and not make a vow than make a vow and not keep it. Okay? In fact, the Old Testament has laws for rash vows. If a child living at home makes a vow, her parents can step in and go, no, she doesn't have to keep that. Right? That's how serious vows were. So they were an obligation. Um, and they were also an act of worship. And usually they were tied to uh, tied to things like, God, you have done this incredible thing for me. In response to that, I'm going to do this. Like, maybe the, the clearest vow in the Bible is what's called the Nazarite vow. It's this time of consecration and dedication where you avoid um, both the joy of wine and grapes and the sorrow of death and dying. And you just, you don't even cut your hair, you're just dedicated to the Lord, right? Um, but other vows we see in scripture come in places where you recognize everything's on the line and you want to relate your request. So we see Hannah, this woman, give a vow. She's barren. She doesn't have any kids. She's constantly coming to the temple and praying that God would give her a kid. And she says, God, if you give me a child, I'll give him right back to you. I'll dedicate him to your service. And you know what Hannah does after she conceives Samuel? She comes to the tabernacle or the temple at that time. No, it's the tabernacle were predated, uh, comes to the tabernacle and offers a thanksgiving offering, this offering. Um, another vow that we see, uh, well, other vows in scripture might be when things are really intense. This is how Martin Luther became a monk. He was in a storm that was so bad he thought he would lose his life, and he said, God, if you get me through this, I will dedicate my life to you in a monastery. In the book of Jonah, right, the storm is all intense, and the sailors, it says, they go afterwards to fulfill their vows. Why? Because they had promised, God, you get us out of this storm, we will respond. But what is that response to be? It's supposed to be a peace offering. 
And this is intriguing for a couple of reasons. One, because even though you've laid this obligation on yourself, it doesn't, it doesn't get you on the guest list, right? You still have to come through the same sacrifice. And it also doesn't absolve you from the presence of God. It's not like, okay, I've done my part, now I can walk away. And so on these two sides, we see two very different things. Gratitude for God and a voluntary obligation because you need God's help, but they both lead to the same gate, the peace offering. You know what it's like? It's like a story that Jesus told about a man who had two sons. And one comes to the father and he says, give me my inheritance. And he goes and he leaves and he blows it all until he's not just impoverished but enslaved. And then he wakes up one day and he says, man, what am I doing? My father's servants eat better than this. I'll go back. I'll apologize. He'll accept me at least as one of his servants because he's a good guy, even though I'm not worthy to be his son. And as he comes into view of his household home, there his father's looking out the kitchen window. He runs and he embraces him, he clothes him, and he kills the fatted calf, right? And they have this type of a feast. They have this type of a festival. And then on the other hand, his older brother, who the whole time this younger brother's been gone, has been working at home on the home farm, comes home, and he hears the party before he sees it. And a servant's nearby coming from the party. He says, what's going on? He says, your brother's returned. Your father has killed the fatted calf, and he crosses his arms, and he says, that is so unfair. And he says, I'm not going to that party. And once again, the father comes out of the house, and he says, come, eat. Your brother who was dead was alive, and he says, no, I've slaved for you for years. Never once have you even killed a goat for me and my friends. And he says, son, all I have is yours. You see, both of those are the realities that we fall in, and some of us, like a pendulum, swing between the two. On one side, we say, I'm content with the gift I want nothing to do with the giver. One of the best ways to watch out for idolatry in your life, of worshiping the creation rather than the creator, in making something that is a good thing the ultimate thing in your life is thankfulness, right? Gratitude. To recognize the giver. On the other hand, there are these occasions where we've developed some semblance of entitlement because we've done something just as we promised to do. It's one of those rare occasions where we've told God we'd do something and we did it. And now we've gotten all uppity and we're like, hey, wait a minute, where's mine? And we forget, all I have is yours, right? And so the, the vow, the person who offered the vow, the one who slaved in the fields, the one who's kept what he says, if he's not entering into the feast, he's missing out on the point once again. Tim Keller points out that both of those men Both of those men miss what the father is after. One says, I want my own way. And the other says, I have to work. And the father's just there. Do you really think on any given night that father, that father, the one who embraced the prodigal, the one who invited in the stuffy older brother, even though it was terribly shameful in that culture for his oldest son to go, I'm not going to my dad's party. That guy's a jerk, right? Both of them, he comes out, he puts himself on the line, he invites them in with no cost to himself. Do you really think that the life with that father was so bad that those are the only two choices? Run or keep your head down and work till the old man dies. Right? It doesn't matter if it's the gift or the labor, both of them can distract us from the giver. The Bible over and over says, not slaves, but sons. Not recipients, but celebrants. What God wants from us is so much more than all of these weird little paradigms we get of who God is. That God is just the way I get good stuff. Or God is the way I avoid bad stuff, so I just do enough to keep him out of my life. Or I just do enough to get what I actually need. Or that God is so demanding, what I have to do is just work. And the Bible over and over says no peace offering, no feast, no celebration, no enter in. No, I'll pay your entry fee. Another passage in Isaiah says it this way. Why do you eat what is not bread? Come and buy from me without money the food of life. Without money. On my own expense. I'll put it on my tab, God says. That's the reality of what God has done. And what does he want from you? You. What does it look like in our lives to have this feast? Well, what does it look like to sit at the table with somebody? One of the things it looks like is conversation. You will notice a major difference in your life 
as according to your prayer life? Is it just, is it just vows and necessities? Is it just about things? Because what we see in the Psalms is there's not a portion of your life that God doesn't want to hear about. And let's be obvious, it's not because he doesn't know. He wants that conversation. Why do I ask my kids what they did at school? Or where they went today or what they think about something? Is it because those facts changed my life? No, it's because those facts let me into my child. Right? Celebration looks like conversation. It looks like engaging with. It looks like sharing with. And what I love about the Psalms is that that can be tremendously honest. There are things that you don't feel are appropriate to say to God that the psalmists have no problem with. Right? Where are you, God? When will you save me? Darkness is my only friend. Right? These are the refrains of the Psalms. These are the things that are present. Even, I just wish that you'd kill my enemies. All of these things. But they're honest. And they're brought into the presence of God. Worship has so much more to do with the direction you're facing than the progress you're making. Whatever's going on in your life, you can change it from crying out to crying unto the Lord by just changing the way you're trajecting things. You can change it from grumbling and complaining to prayer. That's why Paul says, don't worry, but instead pray. Divine orientation. That's part of what we're talking about here. Turning your life to the Lord. A second part of it clearly is joy. Right? It's a feast. It's a festival. It's a time to gather and to celebrate. And this is not a somber affair. Right? Where people are just, you know, keeping their head down and all silently eating, you know, lest God strike them dead. This is, this is the best of occasions. This is the celebration. And... Joy, ultimately, joy is always about entering into reality. It's always about enjoying, right? You can't have joy at a distance. And so, do you recognize that God wants not just to be recognized as a good God, but to be good to you? Another part of it, of course, is, is that as great as the food may be, it's never, it's never about the food. It's, it's about who you're seated with, right? It's not about the gift, it's about the giver. And we gotta watch out for this in our lives of settling, settling for the good and not the greatest good. Settling and falling short of being a servant and not enjoying the privilege of being a son. Enjoying the gifts of the Father and not the Father himself. If you're not a Christian this morning, these things are really important, and I can illustrate why. Maybe you think, well, all I'm really interested in is practical. I just, I just want an ethical life. You know what it's like? It's, it's like you're a parent, and you're smart enough to know everything your child needs to do to succeed in life and to live a life that honors you. And so you write the book, and you give it to them, and they follow it, and they experience success, and they never call you and they never come home for dinner. And at a distance, they're like, yeah, taught me everything I know. I owe my whole life to them. I, I'm doing this unto them, but there's no actual relationship there. If you were that parent, would you be satisfied? Sometimes we look at God as, as like I said, just the giver of, of the great provider. We recognize there's things that we need, and God seems to say that he gives them, and what it ends up being is like a marriage where, where your spouse comes to you and says, okay, I will give you what it takes to have children, I will give you a house. I will give you meals. Uh, and, and there's no actual time together. There's no intimacy. It's just an exchange of goods and services. What God wants is to spend time with you. When my dad, uh, when I was younger, my dad became a Christian. And 
he found this band called Phillips, Craig, and Dean. And I think he was probably drawn to them because it sounded like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, which is like my dad's all-time favorite band. Um, and they actually did somewhat sound like it was harmonies and stuff, but they had this song, and it was about a father who's working hard at the job to provide for his kids. Uh, and, and they basically say, Dad, our yard is big enough. Just come home and play with us in the yard, right? There's enough food on the table. Just be home to eat it with us. And it broke my dad. Um, that's, he's become so sensitive to this reality that, um, you know, he worked weekends and he was in the food and beverage industry. And so mealtimes, he was gone and stuff. And it just, it just hurt him. And, you know, in the, in the 60s, we had this Cats in the Cradle and the Silver Spoon song that was the same thing. We get that. But do you understand the reverse of it? Do you understand the other side of it? That what God most wants is you, not your stuff, not your respect, your presence. That's what the peace offering is about. I'm going to put it metaphorically, but I think it will still hit home. When was the last time you just sat at the table with God and just enjoyed him? Can you say like the psalmist, who do I have in heaven or on earth but you? Communion is so closely related to this offering, to this fellowship offering, to this peace offering. I guess I should have pointed out earlier that peace in the Hebrew mind doesn't, doesn't just mean the absence of war, right, which is how we usually use the term. It means that everything is in its right place. It means that everything's as it should be. It means that you have everything you have, not just to survive, but to thrive. Shalom means so much more than just no negativity. And so this offering isn't just recognizing the fact that there's no hostility between you and God. It's entering into the fullness of a relationship with God. And it's intriguing, isn't it, that the one thing Jesus called us to do, baptize and then communion, has these elements in it. Constantly points to this idea of a, faith, uh, of, a, of a feast. It's bread and wine. It's his body that was broken that we partake of. It's his blood that was shed. And it's the new covenant in his blood. In 1 Corinthians, this is how Paul explains communion. He says that we partake it as we remember and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, and so even communion looking backwards, like Passover that was looking backwards, is actually for us looking forward. It's recognizing that the life we have now, it's just the appetizer. The marriage supper of the Lamb is still to come. And you can enter in in many ways to that celebration now, but it will pale in comparison to when you know as you were known and you see him face to face. That's where the Christian life is headed. I say this all the time, but it's worth saying, which is why I say it all the time. Heaven, according to the Bible, is not just a beautiful place. And it's not just a place where you're reunited. And it's not just a place um, that has an absence of all of these things. If you read Revelation at the very end, the last two chapters, the emphasis over and over again is that it's the place where God's people finally and fully, without distraction or difficulty or division, dwell with God and he dwells with them. That's what's unique about the Christian view of heaven. Lots of views of heaven are beautiful. Lots of views of heaven have no longer any evil, but only the Christian view of heaven emphasizes the fact that finally God and his people are reunited and they can enjoy one another forever. How does Jesus end one of his parables? Come you who have done the works of your father, enter into the joy that was prepared for you. That joy is not just some gift like God's bought you a vacation home. It's himself. It's presence at the table that will never be interrupted. And so as we partake of communion today, partake, enter in, recognize that you can only enter in on somebody else's blood, on, on their broken body, that the table was laid with an offering you couldn't bring. But partake, enter into the table. If you've been distant from the Lord, don't just confess it, although I'd encourage you to do that. Enter in. Tell him what's going on in your life. Celebrate the places where you can see his goodness. The glorious thing about gratitude for a human being is there's lots to be grateful for. And so there's never an occasion where you can go, well, I guess God's not doing anything in my life anymore, right, or today. And that's fine. That's not how it actually works. 
a lack of gratitude is a lack of the ability to see rightly, see really, see truly. Whether you're on this great escapade of a vow, right, where your whole life has been obligation-oriented, come home and sit at the table with the Father. Or maybe, maybe you're pursuing the gift or you've even, you know, said thanks over your shoulder as you run to play with your new toy or, or you have what you've always dreamed of. Maybe you've prayed your entire life for a spouse and now you have one and you have no need of God. It's not just, dude, that's res- disrespectful. It's, there's something better. There's something greater. And all of us who have been married a little bit longer will tell you this morning, it won't be quick until you discover that, right? It won't be long until you go, oh, this, this didn't do it. This isn't what I thought it was. This person is not my savior. Uh, it, it's, it's very clear, ask my wife. Um, there's one other aspect of this that I, I only want to touch on, and I'll leave it for you guys to think about. But did you notice the feast had to be eaten in two days? There's probably other reasons that I can't grasp for that, but I want you to notice economically and uh, practically what that implies. It means you better bring a posse, right? If you just killed an entire calf and you have two days to eat it, you're going to bring some friends. Paul emphasizes the same thing when he talks about communion. He says, don't do it not discerning the Lord's body. Not that body, this body, right? I believe it was Billy Graham who said, anyone who's headed to heaven will pursue taking those around them with them. And the peace offering is this feast that is more than you can eat. It's always got an open invitation. We can say to those around us, come and eat. Come to the table that's been prepared for us. You can have an invitation too. I don't know why I'm obsessed with 60s music, but Cat Stevens has a song called Peace Train. Um, and his, his theme in that whole thing is that peace is coming. The peace train is taking us there. and You can ride on the peace train. Right? That should be our orientation in this. This should be the reality that it's not just... God has a feast for his special people. He has an open invitation. Remember that marriage supper that I told you about that Jesus used to compare to his ministry? He, he compels his servants. He says, go out as far as you can find, anyone you can find. Look in the highways and in the hedges and invite them in to the feast. So there's this reality that's not just fellowship with God, but fellowship with one another that is true and unbroken and unadulterated and non-idolatrous. This is why Jesus came. Listen, listen to this. Ponder on this as we take communion today. This is what John says as he opens his letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Okay, so he says everything we've seen in Jesus, everything Jesus has done, everything we've been sent out to say, and then listen to what he says. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus come? So that we could have fellowship with God and with one another. Partake of the peace offering. Let's pray. Father, I I ask that you would help us, even this morning, afresh, to take a seat at the table, to enter into relationship with you, to celebrate what's worth celebrating, to mourn what's worth mourning, to find our greatest and deepest satisfaction, not in the things that you give, but in the giver, in the giver of all good gifts, the Father of lights. I pray wherever, whatever side we're coming from this morning, whether we've been, we've been working or we've been given, 
whether we've been taking the fat for ourselves or trying to lay out our own table to impress you with our hospitality, I pray that we would just lay that all aside and say, all of this is right but misguided. All of this is good but not ultimate good. All of this falls short of the glory of God, which is a table laid even for his enemies. An invitation given to come and to feast and rejoice with him. Teach us what this looks like in life. May our lives be filled with the joy of the table and the true and deep fellowship of no division, of the barriers being broken down, of no sin that can't be forgiven or cleansed, of no relationship that can't be reconciled. I pray, Lord, that we would really experience communion with you. Not just the act of communion, the eating and the bread and the drinking of the cup, but the experience of communion, of being one with Jesus Christ, being in Christ and Christ in us, that we would be one with one another just as Jesus and the Father are one and we would experience this reality. I pray that you would take those of us who are resistant to intimacy in every area of our life, that we would recognize that we lay that on your shoulders as well, that we keep you at a distance and we would enter in. We ask these things in your name this morning. Amen.